Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. This week, we're talking with Aniket Ulal, Head of ETF Data and Analytics at CFRA. Aniket, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Sumit. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So, Aniket, at the end of last year, you wrote about four ETF trends that you thought investors should watch out for in 2023. Now that we're quickly approaching the end of the year, I'd love it if we could revisit those trends and see if they're still relevant today. How's that sound to you? That sounds terrific. You know, it's always uh, as as three of us follow the ETF industry closely, we always like to look out into the future and predict, but it's always good to keep ourselves honest and look back at what we said and see see how things panned out. So it's a nice way to just look back at the year and also maybe look ahead a little bit. Definitely. We'll, we'll definitely look forward at the end of this podcast as well. But I want to start off by asking about one of the trends you wrote about, and that is the growth of defined outcome ETFs. It, it seems to me that last year was the perfect environments for these ETFs to thrive you know, stocks went down pretty significantly. The S&P 500 dropped something like 18%, but they didn't crash. And so investors in defined outcome ETFs were insulated from a lot of that drawdown. This year, though, things are a bit different. Stocks have surged. And so defined outcome ETFs have tended to underperform traditional broad market funds. Is that an accurate portrayal of what's gone on, Anakit? And what's your take on defined outcome ETFs today? Well, the, when I wrote the article looking looking at this year, when I wrote this at the end of last year, I essentially argued that defined outcome ETFs had caught a wave, right? Like you said, the investing environment for those products were 2022 was kind of the ideal year for that, uh, given what was happening with the 60-40 portfolio. The question, open question was, would that continue this year? In other words, was it just a one-year phenomena given last year's economic environment? Or was it a longer term trend? And I think the answer to that pretty clear looking at this year is that it is a longer term trend. And two things have surprised me. One is that we've seen as many inflows into defined outcome ETFs this year as we have last year. Last year, we saw about $10 billion going into these products in aggregate. This year, we're already past the $10 billion mark. So despite the fact that, like you said, stocks have been up this year, um, particularly the first half of this year was very strong. Despite that, we've seen these products grow in in flows and grow in popularity. So I think it's a broad, it's reflective of a broader move towards more products that focus on structured outcomes as opposed to um, just pure, you know, vanilla exposure. So I, I do think that uh, this year has kind of answered the question: is it a is it a short term thing or long term? And I think the answer is clear: it's it's a kind of a longer term trend. That's really interesting that we're seeing the same amount of inflows this year as we saw last year, even though the market environment's so different, right? So that that tells me that this is more of a secular trend and maybe people are get, becoming more educated on these products and that's what's driving the inflows. Uh, do you think you know the flows are going to continue regardless of the market environment or do you think that plays a part in it as well? Well, ultimately, the market environment is, is good, certainly going to shape. Uh, what happens with products, right? If products cannot be divorced from the market environment. But like, you know, I think the fact that more ETF issuers are focused on this space and put more distribution muscle behind these products indicates that 
you know, I think that's part of the reason why flows have been strong. I mean, what's, what's been interesting to me is we know that Innovator was the first firm to enter the space and they did a tremendous job of educating the market and growing these products. What's been interesting to me is to see to see followers like, you know, First Trust in particular, that's been actually quite successful. In fact, I think they've taken in over $6 billion this year in, in defined or buffer ETFs. So it's been interesting to see that it's not just Innovator, other firms have come in, Allianz is another one, and had success in this category. So I think it's a combination. What we've seen is flows tends to be a combination of two things. One is the market environment, and the second is how much distribution muscle or marketing effort two firms put behind certain categories. And I think this is a category where firms, have, it's, it's now not just Innovator, which created the category, it's other firms have also come in. And so I think that's also been a contributing factor here. That's a really interesting point. And one product in particular that really stood out to me, Anakit, is the Innovator Equity Defined Protection ETF T-Jewel. That one really shocked me when it came out in July because it offers something like 17% upside, but 100% downside protection for two years. As far as I'm aware, we haven't seen that type of product before in the ETF industry you know, you're talking about a potential seven or eight percent annual return with no downside market risk. That's kind of interesting, right? I think I think it's very interesting. I think they're very good at marketing their products and identifying niches that haven't been uh, exploited. And essentially, they're going after that part of the market that is probably investing more in insurance type annuity type products. Um, you know, so it's probably trying to expand the space a little bit. And I think it's a very smart strategy. I think they've also been quite actively going after money that's been sitting on the sidelines, right? That uh, now, I don't know if that's, we've still seen money sitting on the sidelines. When I say sidelines, I mean, for example, money market funds have taken in incredible amount of money this year. I think they've taken in way more money than ETFs in aggregate. So, but on that particular product, I think it was certainly, like you said, unique. And I think it's a very interesting way to approach the market and go after a segment of the market that the ETF issuers weren't tapping into earlier. And we have seen inflows of over $200 million into that fund since its launch in July. Before we move on from this topic, Anakit, I want to ask you how much overlap you think there is between investors in fixed income and investors in defined outcome ETFs. It doesn't seem like there's a lot given what you said about inflows being strong. But do you think that these ETFs are a little less attractive to some investors with bonds yielding 5 6 or 7%? Or is it a completely different investor base? Because I'm looking now when the standard buffer ETFs from Innovator are offering 18% upside with 15% downside protection. That's obviously much more upside than you can get from bonds today. Yeah, I mean, I think these. my understanding is some of these products have been positioned as bond proxies, and I think they have tried to go after that market. Obviously, it gets much more challenging when you have much higher yields on fixed income to go after that segment. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll be, I don't, I don't know if they're exact proxies. Like you said, obviously, the upside on, on some of these defined outcome ETFs is quite high. And so I think they'll kind of carve out a niche for themselves. Hey, Anakit, I want to talk to you about another thing you, you mentioned a year ago, uh, mutual fund to ETF conversions. At, at that time, in December of last year, you said you counted or calculated $40 billion worth of mutual fund to ETF conversions over the prior two years. And you said you didn't see any sign of that slowing down. 
What's the status of that now? And I think that really the bigger question is, aside from retirement uh, 401k plans, what would be the case for not converting to an ETF if you're a mutual fund manager? Well, that's a great question. When I wrote the article, I kind of headlined it as, are we going to see a tidal wave in in ETF conversions? I don't think we've seen a tidal wave. My prediction was that we would probably end up somewhere um you know, at the at the hundred billion dollar mark in assets of converted ETFs by the end of this year, I think right now we're at about uh, just over sixty products that were converted from mutual funds to ETFs and about seventy billion in assets, current assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so close to the hundred billion didn't quite get there. I'm actually a little surprised that the number wasn't higher. I was expecting a little bit more activity in the space, and we actually saw. Because if we look at the broader context that a lot of the incumbent mutual fund managers had to respond to the growth in ETFs and, you know, it seemed logical to me that conversions would be the Mm -hmm. way to do that. So I'm a little surprised it hasn't been more. I'm also a little bit surprised how one or two firms have dominated that. If you look at Dimensional and and JP Morgan, together they account for over 90% of all the converted assets. Mm-hmm. And so even though there's over 20 firms that were converted, it's really been nominated by two. I do think next year, though, that we will see more more of these. We saw Fidelity do recently. I do think that more of the big, large asset managers will use conversion as kind of a strategy. The only firm that hasn't done it so far is Capital Group. They've, of course, been successful with doing greenfield ventures. But I think a lot of the other managers will use conversions as a strategy. Do you think the the retirement plan market is the the kind of thing holding mutual funds, mutual fund managers to that wrapper versus ETFs? I think that's a factor, but I think there's other things too. I think one is fee compression. A lot of you know mm-hmm. firms have higher fees on mutual funds. The average uh, fee, obviously, in a mutual fund is much higher than in ETF. So if you convert, then obviously there's huge potential revenue loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's potential channel conflict issues, right? So mutual fund managers may be paying distribution fees to some of the intermediaries, uh, which typically doesn't happen in the ETF space. Um, so I think there's other probably internal reasons why it's not that easy to to convert. Right. So I think some of the fund managers have to kind of navigate that that process of responding to the demand for ETFs without compromising <laughs> their current yeah. Chan- distribution channels and profit margins. It's kind of the classic incumbent dilemma in, in a sense. One more, one more thing I want to ask you about on this topic is the uh, ETF share classes. The, what yes. do you think the status of that is? Obviously, uh, Vanguard kind of patented it, patented the, the idea or the concept and has let that patent expire. Now, it's I guess it's open to anyone, but nobody has... People have filed, but nobody's pulled it off yet, right? Well, I think that everyone's waiting on the SEC to come back uh, right. with a with a uh, on that. So, I mean, both three firms have filed, the largest of which are Fidelity and, and Dimensional, both of which are significant players. So, I think if the SEC approved it, it seems pretty clear that they would pursue that path. There seem to be a lot of good reasons to do, to to use that strategy. So, I think if the SEC is okay with it and does approve it, I, I do expect that to be another path that. Uh, firms will follow. I mean, at the end of the day, there are many advantages to convert either converting a fund or issuing a share class. You, you can port over your performance history. You, you know, you're immediately moving up the asset leaderboard. You're, you know, you're saving costs relative to launching a greenfield venture. 
So it seems to me like more for more firms would pursue this strategy if the SEC approves it. Anakit, another concept you wrote about at the end of last year is the idea that the lines between active and passive are blurring. Can you explain what you meant by that and whether that's something that we continue to see in 2023? I think it's something we have. Of, in fact, of the four things I wrote about, I feel this is the one that's actually been the most accurate. Um, you know, the way we've been conditioned to think historically is to think of, frame our entire you know, view of investing as active versus passive. And, you know, when I say active, I'm talking, you know, think of somebody like ARK, like, you know, ARKK, like, you know, we're a strong, high conviction active manager picking stocks and with a very strong conviction on a particular theme and passive, uh, something like SPY, right? Whereas actually what's happened is that where the real battle has happened for assets is in that squishy middle space, which is what I call the systematic space where people are saying, you know what, you can actually generate um, alpha from getting systematic exposure to certain factors like value, growth, or size, or momentum, or whatever these low volatility and so on. Now, either you can do that through an indexed approach, right, which is what we've typically called smart beta, or you could do it through an active approach, which is, you know, what somebody like a dimensional does. And it's actually quite interesting to look at, if you look at a firm like dimensional, Right, most information providers, data providers who track the ETF space classify them as active. But if you hear them describe themselves, they don't describe themselves really as active. They call themselves non-indexed passive, right? Because they're systematically going after certain spaces, even though they don't necessarily use an index to do that. And so I really think that this is where in the next few years, there's really going to be you know, a battle for assets and where investors really going to have to decide, do they want indexed exposure for systematic uh, factor exposure or do they want this more active type exposure? When I say active, I mean non-indexed type exposure through funds like Dimensional. And so I really think that these, which is why I argue these lines are getting blurred between what we typically think of as very conventional active versus very conventional indexed. And I, I, I think to me that's, an interesting area to keep an eye on. No, absolutely. Very interesting. And what do you think it means for investors? Do do they have to look, you know, more closely under the hood to see, you know, what these ETFs are really doing? I think ultimately investors have to ask themselves what their investing philosophy is, right? There's the classic passive investor who buy the S&P 500 or the total market. And then there's others who believe in certain fund managers who can pick stocks. I think the question investors have to ask is what is driving alpha? Is it is it certain factor exposures that drive alpha or is it somebody being able to pick individual securities? And so I think that's ultimately going to drive and there may be different segments in the market. There's going to be the very traditional index type segment. There's going to be the people who believe in somebody like a Cathy Wood. And then there's going to be a large segment in the middle who thinks that, you know what, a lot of active management is actually really about getting, you know, this kind of factor, systematic uh, exposure to different factors. And so I think it's really both for investors and for the ETF providers to think, you know, really hard about what, where does the alpha come from? Is it coming from these different factors? How is that different from just traditional stock picking? And I think that's going to be an interesting thing to watch and and really see, uh, you know, how how it plays out. But that's I think 
being having some clarity on the philosophy behind one's investment approach is really ultimately going to determine which kind of funds to pick. And again, I love this uh, topic of the politicization of ETFs. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the origins of it. I, I see it as starting in the ESG space that has kind of morphed into all these anti-ESG and anti-woke strategies. You've got Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he founded Strive Asset Management a little over a year ago, and now he's running for president. And he was kind of one of the louder voices in the the anti-woke I guess okay. camp. Uh, Matthew Tuttle, uh, his he's rolled out some funds that are trying to you know poke the bear a little bit too. What what are your thoughts on this? This seems to to me to kind of go against the grain of what you know mass market appeal would be. If you're trying to reach an audience of financial advisors or or investors in general, if you start taking some kind of a political position, you would seem to automatically eliminate half your market. Right. Well, when I wrote the article, my my view was that there were two elements to this politicization. The first was, as you as you rightly said, around ESG. In other words, ESG would get politicized, and then you know that would determine whether firms would stick with their ESG strategies or back away. What surprised me is how quickly firms have backed away from their ESG positions. I mean, BlackRock was very clearly talking about ESG a year ago. They're not talking about it as much more as much right now. I've been surprised with the speed at which firms have kind of backed away in the US, not in mm -hmm. Europe, of course, but in the US, how firms have backed away from some of their ESG stances. I think essentially they had to do a, I'm guessing, some kind of a calculation of, you know, right. what do, what do they stand to lose in terms of <laughs> maybe losing certain constituencies. Um, versus were people really buying into it? And I think they probably saw that the flows into ESG weren't as strong as to justify taking such a strong stand on it. Is That's kind of, I have a feeling they probably did some calculation like that. So that's one element of it. The second element of it, which goes beyond ESG, is just proxy voting and governance. You know, as fund managers just become a bigger and bigger part of the ecosystem and a bigger shareholders in, in American corporations, how do they approach voting, you know, not just on ESG, but all kinds of shareholder issues, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm I'm actually a little surprised that we haven't heard more about that. You know, we've seen the big asset managers, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, all experiment with various forms of programs where they essentially delegate the, the voting, you know, authority back down to the share to individual shareholders. And I think ultimately they don't want to be the ones taking the stand on many issues. They'd rather have individual, they kind of shareholders take vote on the individual issues. Uh, I'm surprised that we haven't heard more about that this year. Maybe it'll come up again next year. But yeah, so I mean, these are two separate things. There's an ESG discussion. And then there's a there's separate broader discussion on corporate governance and proxy voting and, and things like that. On the ESG, like your, your earlier question, I, I am a little bit surprised that We've seen firms back away, but maybe that may be linked to your initial point that by taking such a strong stand on ESG, maybe they were concerned that they were just kind of, you know, alienating some part of the investor base. Mm -hmm. The pro ESG folks that I talk to, they don't think it's the the political stance part that's that's moving money out of it. I, I think they look through things, look at things through kind of a one dimensional lens and think everybody should want ESG. If people are backing out, it might be a performance issue. Maybe it's a fee issue. I don't know. To me, 
I see it as ESG investing, the the E, the environmental, social, and governance factors are continuing to be part of uh, investment analysis and research. And it seems like these are the things that maybe have always been there in some way, but now are becoming more important factors to consider. My thinking is, and maybe this is a short-term view based on what we've seen over the past year or so, is that the, the, the ESG moniker is likely to fade away, but the factors are likely to continue forever. I agree with you. I think that's an interesting way to look at it, which is, I think, and also there are downsides to being so transparent, mm-hmm. I guess, in a sense about having the ESG label because then it alienates people, whereas if you just have it as part of the process. I mean, it gets get a little complicated also because of the names rule. Now the SEC has obviously made it really right. dragged down and making sure that the investment process and the name of the fund have to be consistent. So I think firm is also trying to navigate that. And then, of course, there's a performance last year, you know, was complicated for ESG because energy was the only positive sector uh, last year. Every other sector was down and energy tends to be underweight in most ESG portfolios. And so I think that made it much more difficult for managers because suddenly you're really having to say, you know what, if you believe in ESG, you've got to trade down, trade off a little bit in terms of performance. Um, so I think it's all of these probably factors. It's the performance issue, the political issue, the names rule, probably all of those kind of come into play a little bit. So Anakit, we're a little over a month away from the end of the year. Maybe I'm a little early asking this, but do you have any ETF predictions for 2024 that you can share with us? Well, uh, I'm still trying to figure out, think about, I plan to do something similar where I kind of write a few pieces looking ahead of next year. I haven't fully firmed those up yet, but um, there are, I think, a few things that have caught my interest and I think are interesting. One is, I kind of feel like we may see some kind of unbundling on emerging markets exposure. You know, historically, when looking at emerging markets exposure, many U.S. investors have used EEM or, you know, one of those kind of MSCI emerging market linked ETFs. The problem is that China makes up about 30% of those ETFs typically. And that's been an issue both from the point of view of the fact that China has underperformed. And then there's other secular factors like the fact that there's been tension between the U.S. and China. And obviously people look re-looking at supply chains. So I think that they may be, investors may start to unbundle their EM exposure a little bit, maybe try and get more, so move away from the more traditional, typical EM ETFs towards, you know, maybe more targeted or other ones, um, you know, that provide maybe more exposure to countries like, you know, Taiwan, Korea, India, and so on. So I think that's an interesting one, I think, to, to pay attention to. The other thing I think that's worth really focusing on is market depth. I mean, we've seen this year, obviously, a lot of talk about the M7 and the fact that we've had a few very, very top-heavy mega-cap stocks drive returns. And and I think what's going to be interesting to see next year is does the breadth come back and does the breadth improve? Because we've really seen a pretty significant divergence between mega and large-cap stocks versus small-cap. And you know, I think that's another thing trend to kind of keep an eye on, which is how does the depth change? And of course, I know you guys have done tremendous work writing about TLT and what's happening with rates. And this year we saw so many occasions when investors came in and tried to call the top on rates and bought TLT and got burned. 
And I think that's going to be another story to track next year is, you know, are we finally going to see rates? Have, have we seen rates peaking? Could we even see rate cuts? So what does that mean for fixed income exposure? So I think these are some of the things I think are going to be important next year. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I noticed RSP, the equal weighted S&P 500 is lagging the broader S&P 500 by something like 1500 basis points. And we've never seen that type of outperformance in that ETF, um, I, I think, since it was launched, you know, close to. Yeah. To- historically, uh, RSP has always done very well. Uh, mid cap has actually been always one of the strongest performers. If you look at the S&P 1500, the mid cap segment has always been one of the best performers. So this year has actually been very unusual in how top heavy it's been. And I think for investors, that's going to be a really important thing to look at is, is that going to change? Is breadth going to improve? Because that really determines their returns and how to position their portfolios. And Anika, do you have any views on whether this surge in interest we've seen in covered call ETFs is going to continue in 2024 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I see that as part of a broader um, interest in income strategies. I mean, just given the demographics, obviously, in in, in the US, I think, um, you know, we're always going to see interest in income strategies. And I think that is a very smart way to go after kind of those investors who care a lot about income. So I, I do think we'll continue to see interest in the, in the, I don't think that that's good. That's going to go away. Obviously in a market that's rising rapidly, you know, you're giving away some upside, but I think the investors who are interested in these strategies may actually be okay with that because you're still getting, capturing some upside and they may be okay being a little bit defensive and giving up some upside in, in return for some income. So uh, I, I don't think it's a short-term thing. I do think it's 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 here to stay. And Aniket, before we let you go, do you have any thoughts on the upcoming ETF.com awards? I know you're a judge on the awards panel. I'm I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm I'm a big advocate for ETF.com. I think you guys do an incredible job of of reporting what's going on and bringing the community to get together. So I, I was involved last year and. Um, happy to be involved again as a judge this year and and you know celebrate people who are doing interesting things in the industry. So I appreciate you guys uh, you know inviting me to be a judge and I'm looking forward to looking forward to that event. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it too. And in case anyone's wondering, nominations for the awards open on December 1st and run through January 8th. So be sure to submit those starting next week. Anikit, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Sumit and Jeff. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.